But I have a question for us this morning, uh, something that we need to think about. And the question is this, is your life built on the wrong thing? Is the foundation of your life misplaced? Is it family or career or success or wealth, um, satisfaction? Is it one of those things? Or as Jesus is going to call us to this morning, is our foundation built upon him? Do we realize that the only thing that lasts and endures and stands the test is Jesus and his good news, his gospel? So it's not going to be a light, fluffy sermon. Um, I'm much nicer than Chris and Andrew, um, but it's still a hard word. Uh, And we find ourselves, if you've been following us for the past almost a year now, we've been in Matthew, uh, and over half a year we've been in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, this famous Sermon of Jesus, and we find ourselves at the end of it, finally. We're getting there, guys. We're getting there. Uh, And Jesus uses the end uh, to kind of summarize everything he's been talking about and give us a final warning, uh, a final signpost saying, watch out for this. Uh, Here's the pitfalls if you're going to walk this journey with me. If you want to be my follower, here's what to watch out for in your own heart. So it's a heavy, it's rich, it's an amazing section of scripture. Um, And I, I really hope that, and my prayer all week has been, and my heartbeat all week has been that we've just struck by the the weight of Jesus' words, but ultimately at the end of this, that we'll walk away amazed by him. That we'll be in awe of Jesus. And that's where I want us to land. So I'll reveal all my cards right now. uh, And that's where I want us to get to today. Uh, So I want to pray first before we dive in. So uh, Jesus, thank you that you're a good king, uh, that you love your people so much. Uh, that you look on this room and smile on us, and that you care more about our hearts um, than our actions or our good deeds, uh, but you care deeply and intimately uh, about our desires aligning with your desires. So, so Spirit, I ask um, that you'll, yeah, just be richly in this room, soften our hearts, uh, remove the distractions of the weeks, and may we just be able to see, see what's going on in ourselves, see what's going on in your word, uh, and be changed by that. So thank you for this time and this opportunity. Let's dive in. If you guys have your Bible, uh, open it up. Uh, We're going to be in Matthew 7, uh, 21 onwards to the end of the chapter. And uh, we're going to get through all this. It's going to be great. So I'm going to dive right in. Starts off saying, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So before we dive into what Jesus is actually saying, we just need to pause for a second. What's this kingdom that Jesus is talking about? So if you've been here, been paying attention, you'll know that kingdom is a common theme uh, throughout this whole Sermon on the Mount. A lot of people call it the constitution of the kingdom, right? Like this is the Sermon on the Mount has been everything that Jesus' kingdom is about. He talks through intimately all the different things. Uh, and around West Village, we don't use the kingdom language a lot. We probably use gospel more, uh, but they're very similar, if not yeah equated things. And the idea of the gospel is there's good news. Good news that Jesus has come, that he's our king, that he has defeated the enemy, the ultimate enemy in Satan and sin and death. Uh, And he needed to do that because our world was sinful and broken. And we are sinful and broken as people. And Jesus, he cared about us so much that he came in and he rescued us, right? He did something that he didn't have to do. He laid down his whole life uh, so that we could be invited in and participate in his kingdom. So that's the kingdom that he's talking about entering into. Uh, It's a kingdom where we submit to God's wills and his desires because he's the king, and we're just servants in that kingdom. And it's really more about the king than the kingdom. Uh, And there's beauty in that, and there's amazingness in that. And we've seen how Jesus is worthy of that all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. So just keep that in mind uh, as we talk about kingdom here. But he starts off really heavy, right? He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. You know, this isn't, uh, this isn't a light, here's how you get in sermon. This is, we're not all going to make it. And that's hard. Last week was hard. There's hard words in the Bible, and we can't ignore them. Uh, we need to lean into them, take them seriously, and feel the weight of them. And recognize that you know, there's a narrow gate and a wide gate, as was talked about last week. There's an easy path and there's a more challenging path. And the Christian life is called to that narrow gate time and time again. Uh, There's something different about it. 
We also need to realize here, because uh, a lot of us are like, oh, well, I'm glad I've chosen the narrow path. I'm awesome. It's all those non-Christians out there, you know, taking the easy highway of life. This whole section is aimed at us church people. It's for us sitting in this room right now. But Jesus says, not everyone who will call me Lord, Lord. No one who doesn't know Jesus is going to even think of him as Lord. This is for us, people that call him Lord on a daily basis or to send to that in our hearts. So pay attention to that. We can't check out right now. This is about us. It's important for us. So then he goes on and says, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Those are the ones who get to enter in. Striving after the Father's will is the stamp of salvation. It defines kingdom life. It defines what we're about as a church, as a gospel people. It's figuring out God's will and reorienting our whole lives around us. And so when we hear this, when we hear that the way into the kingdom is God's will, knowing that, following that, doing that, various things can arise up in us. Some of us, maybe not many, will be angry. How could it be one way? This can't be. You're saying everyone else is left out of the kingdom, doesn't have a place, can't belong. How could Jesus not let everyone in? And we've dealt with this uh, in previous weeks, so I won't dive into it in depth here. But I'll say this. We all have the choice in our life of the king that we choose to serve. Is it going to be Jesus? Is it going to be ourselves? Is it going to be our family? Is it going to be our job, our career? We make that choice. And Jesus allows us to do that. It's one of the, the graces in our life. And we get to bear the fruit of that. If, if you serve the king of your career or your family, the fruit of that is a life away from Jesus and all the good things that come with him. So we choose that. So if that anger rises up in you, you're like, there can only be one choice. Ask yourself that question. What is the king in your life, and what are they promising you? What does your, your worship end up in? What is the final fruit of that? Another response is apathy. Who cares? Let me do me. This doesn't matter. Uh, and it's similar to the anger people. We need to recognize that there's a king in our life no matter what. Even if you don't care, you're sitting here, you were dragged here this morning, um, this isn't a big deal to you. Your life is defined by a king already. Your life is defined by something that you serve and give it all to. And maybe it is lounging around in your sweatpants on a Saturday watching Netflix all day. But that is something that you worship and are enslaved to and is a king. And so we need to ask, are you serving a good king? What is that king giving you? That king's giving you a bigger waistline and like Dorito dust on your face, right? Like, is that what you want? Is that king amazing? Did that king lay down your life for you, or does that king charge you $8 a month? <clears throat> and I don't think we sit and ask these questions. I, I'm, by nature, an apathetic, who cares type person, and so I regularly have to check myself in this area and say, man, are the kings of comfort um, and relaxation that I love to serve, what are they actually getting me? And remind myself often that, and this is why I sent to Jesus, because he's a good king. He knows what's best for me. He did so much for me. Uh, and that's the king I want to worship. And that's the king that speaks to my apathetic heart. Or maybe your response to this is, man, am I going to get in? I'm worried. I'm anxious. Matt, you're causing me great pain right now. I'm just thinking through my life of, you know, am I doing Jesus' will? How can I make sure I'm in? So this next section speaks to that. And we need to pay attention here. All of us need to pay attention here. Because if the call in our lives is to do the Father's will, uh, we need to ask what God's will is. And this is a question that most people ask at some point in their lives, usually for you know, the younger we are, we ask this question often before we have kids and careers and all those distracting things. And it's a fair question, a question that we should all ask if we say we're going to follow Jesus. What is his will for me, for our lives? 
there's entire sections of bookstores dedicated to this, right? People just chew on this question over and over and over again, uh, and they antagonize and agonize over every decision of their life because they worry, uh, are they doing God's will here? Are they doing the right thing? You know, should I buy this brand of toothpaste or this brand of toothpaste? Um, you know, should I drink coffee or tea? I'm just kidding. But there are people that they antagonize about this, right? Uh, Bible college students are the worst. If you ever hang out with those people, they sit around all day and debate these things. Should I date this person or this person? Uh, it just goes on and on. Um, I had to deal with Andrew like this when uh, he was in school, and uh, he made all the wrong decisions, and God still gave him a great wife. So um, there's hope for all of you. But we find these people that they lament, this is all of us, if only God would write down what he wants for my life and deliver it to me, if only he would speak clearly in this area, if only... We live our lives lamenting, mourning the fact that God hasn't given us clear direction. And it actually paralyzes us to realize that God did just that. He gave us this book, this amazing Bible. I write boom in my sermon notes. Boom. He wrote it down for us. It's here. We'll use Matthew 28 as an example, right? So we say, oh, but that's, you know, that's, that's just generalized. I want specifics. He says, Matthew 28, at the end of this, I'll give you the end of our sermon series. Go and make disciples, teaching them and baptizing them. Here's your new identity as a family of missionary servants, and I want you to go and live that out wherever you're at. And so if, if you say to yourself, but I want specifics, if that's the thing that's going in your heart again and again, Really what you're saying to Jesus is, I don't want to do that. I don't want to go and make disciples. I'm not going to do that until you lay it out for me step by step. And that's insulting to Jesus, right? He cares about you deeply. He he did this for you and he gave this direction because this is his will for you. This is his desire for you. And he doesn't want just bits and pieces of your life. He wants your whole life to align with his goals and his purpose. And this purpose of making disciples and bringing more people to him. As we get to know Jesus better, we see he has this immense heart for his people. For people that are lost and broken and hurt, just like us in this room. He cares about them so much. It's so important to him um, that they come into right relationship with him. Because that's how they were made to be. And that's what he wants for his people. He wants us to have that heart. He wants us to be out there and seeing our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers and be like, man, I mourn that you don't know Jesus. My whole life should be shaped around introducing you to this great king that I know. I want that for you. It saddens me when you share your burdens and your troubles with me because I know that our king can meet them. And that's his will. That's his desire for us. That's what shapes our whole life this constant death to what we want and acknowledgement of what Jesus wants. So we need to recognize that we have the opportunity every day, right where we are, to fully work out God's will for us. We don't need to fret and write out lists and think of all the options that we have because we know, we know the lens that we need to look at these things through. In our homes, in our workplaces, gyms, coffee shops, grocery stores, God has given us the opportunity right now to work out his will. We're not waiting for more specifics or what's next or him to bring us something. He's already placed us where we need to be and given us what we need to do. Let's keep going on here. So Jesus wants more than just our words and our consent that he is Lord, right? That's what this whole section is about. can't just say, Lord, Lord to do the Father's will. He wants our hearts to be changed and the Father's desires to become our desires. <clears throat> and I find, as I was going through this and chewing on this, um, passage in Romans came to mind. But what this really looks like, right? So I'll read this here. This is from Romans 10, 9-10. Don't need to turn there with me. Just listen. It says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. It always comes back to the heart, right? Jesus cares a lot about what's going on in our hearts. And that faith, profession, our words, they lead to action. Belief brings diligence and change in our life. Our identity defines our doing. This is the heartbeat of the gospel in West Village. Is we talk about this so much. We talk about our identities of being a family of missionary servants. And so I wanted to take a, a little West Village moment here and just look at uh, what we call them the four questions in light of Jesus's kingship. So these four questions are great questions to ask of any chunk of scripture. And they really point us to who God is, what he has done, who we are, and how we get to live in light of that. So they show us what our faith is in, how that belief defines us, shows us what God's will is, and then defines our doing, defines our actions. So who is God here? God is our king. This is about the kingdom and Jesus coming as that king. What has he done? He's a good king. He defeated our enemy of death and sin and Satan, and he made a kingdom for us. He invited us into something um, that is amazing. He's going to create a place for us, give us a home, take care of our needs. We see all these things through the Sermon on the Mount. So who are we then? Kings have servants. We are servants to this king. We bow down to him because he's done so much, and we actually trust that it's better to be a servant and being taken for, uh, being taken care of by a good king uh, than doing our own thing, than having to take care of ourselves. And how do we get to live? We serve our king. We work out his will because we know that's what's best for us and those around us. So those four questions help shape us, show us um, who God is in this situation. So if we claim to follow Jesus, we can't forget that this lens of being servants to our king is the lens that we view all of life's decisions through. Anytime you agonize over what God's will is for your life, you step back, you put this lens on and say, okay, I don't need to fret about this. He has told me that he is my king and I am his servant. So what choice can I do that best with? Maybe it's both choices. Maybe the choice is really that you're just going to give every decision over to Jesus and every outcome over because you know wherever you're placed, wherever you are, he can use you. He can use you for his glory, his will, and his mission. So we can't be paralyzed uh, by the choices in front of us. Wherever we are, wherever we're at, Jesus will meet us there, equip us, and show us how to do his will there. We're not kings of our own lives. We tend, we tend to think we are, right? We tend to sit here and think through every decision and what's best for us, and I'm in control. I hold on to these things, but we're not. We're not kings of our own lives. Jesus is, and he's way better than us. So he continues on. He says, many will say to me on that day, Jesus is talking kind of about the end times when, when we meet him, uh, when he comes back, he says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy, oh man, prophesy, there we go, in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? So again, we see that these words are for the Christians. These are for church people. Non-church people are not out prophesying. I'm going to get this word down. Um, they're not out driving out demons. They're not performing many miracles, right? This is, this is for us. These are people trying to do the Lord's will. Jesus is talking about all of us, about you know, good Christian people. Uh, if you're here and you're, you're just on the, starting on this journey with Jesus, someone dragged you along, you don't know him, um, you get to sit back and watch Jesus chew out all the church people. It's great. Um, and actually, you know, these people are way better than any of us. You guys need to step up your game. I haven't seen you performing many miracles lately or driving out demons. Um, so these words are even harsher for us in some ways, right? Maybe not. He says, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Ouch. 
That is a heavy word to people that have been acting and looking and doing deeds that look like the work of a good Christian, of a follower of Jesus, doing many amazing things. And Jesus' words for them is, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Those are harsh words. Um, you know, our favorite commentator uh, in this section has been a guy by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he says, these words are, <clears throat> in many ways, are more solemnizing, you know, noteworthy, and indeed alarming than anything we find in the whole extent of the Holy Writ. It means Bible. Um, I'm pretty sure he says that about every single passage of the Sermon on the Mount. But it is alarming. This is striking. We can't just you know, pass over this or be numb to these words that Jesus is saying. Uh, imagine him standing before you and saying these. Hopefully that causes your heart to break. I never knew you. That's, that's a little bit scary, actually. I had to analyze myself a lot uh, as we went through this week. And so we Christians have actually become really, really good at deceiving ourselves into thinking that we are doing Jesus' will or that we know him, that he knows us, but we don't. We're masters of self-deception, right? You know, we, we show up on Sundays and we serve. We know how to do that. We read our Bibles every day, or at least every other day. You know, we give to the church. We are in a community group. We're missionaries. We're bringing people to Jesus. We do these things. We've checked all the boxes. We know all the West Village lingo, right? We've deceived ourselves. And this self-deception is so dangerous. Because we cannot get to the end of our lives and have Jesus say, I never knew you. If we have deceived ourselves that much, we're so off base. So we need to ask ourselves hard questions. Um, because we can't get to the end of our lives, take our Christian resume, and demand that Jesus lets us in. It's not the king we serve. It's not salvation based on our resumes of what we have done. The only entry into this kingdom, this amazing kingdom that Jesus gave us a glimpse of, and that the church gives us a glimpse of, is knowing the king. So how do we guard against this self-deception? Three, three lovely steps here. First one, make sure you have a proper understanding and assurance of what salvation is, what it actually means to be a saved person. It can't be based on a formula, saying a prayer, raising a hand. It can't be based on every time you feel a little anxious about, you know, do I got my get-out-of-hell-free card you kind of repeat some verses for you, like the one I just read. Okay, I, I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord. Jesus, you are Lord. I believed in my heart, whatever that means. Now I'm in. It can't be based on that, right? We can't just have these trite sayings that we depend on. It can't be about doing all the right Christian activities. I think we all get this one. We know it, but we fall back into it so often, right? I don't need to worry. I'm going to heaven because, you know, I served in the band. I did kids. Everybody who does kids automatically gets into, into heaven. That's just that's an easy one. Right? So we can't fall back on these things. Um, that can't be the assurance of our salvation. Our, the assurance of our salvation needs to come through this deep desire to know our king, right? This deep desire to know Jesus better and how that then shapes everything we do. We should look really weird and do weird things because we want to know Jesus better. We should see his spirit as evidence in our lives that, man, there's peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control that comes out of me, and I have no idea why. And that's the spirit's mark on my life. It's because I have desired to know my king. I pursue him with all that I am, and he gives me peace in that. That's where our assurance needs to come from. So make sure you properly understand that. Don't depend on the wrong things there. Number two, self-examination. Examine our hearts and our lives regularly. And I'll, I'll put a word of caution here. I was actually doing this this morning, uh, just kind of looking through my life and be like, yeah, what are some of the evidences of, 
of God's grace and Jesus working in my life. And the danger here for some of us is we turn it into self-righteousness and pride. Like, oh yeah, good job, Matt. You did this and this and this. So I'll give you that as a, a warning here. Be careful as you examine your heart. This isn't about you. This is about giving God glory in what you've done. But it's very important. Um, and, and so I, I thought it would actually be good to um, not pridefully, but share an example of my life. Um, and I'll confess that I'm a super prideful person. If you've hung out with me any time, you will know that. I always think I'm right and that you are wrong. Um, and that's not going to change. Um, <laughs> I just do it really nicely and humbly and say it with nice Jesus words. So if you guys know my story at all, um, I've been around West Village since since day one, since the good old living room days. And uh, two or three years into this journey, you know, I, I had gone to Bible school. I had a degree in um, whatever we do up here. And uh, and there was an opportunity, uh, and my heart actually desired to, to come on staff. So West Village had enough funds, and so I came on staff. Um, I got paid to do this. Uh, and it was great for a season. And but as it drew on, uh, about you know ten months into it or so, uh, there was something not sitting right with me uh, as I did this. And so as I sat and examined my heart, uh, I found that my motives. Uh, it's the other thing you need to know would be as I'm super lazy and I just want to do like the least amount of work possible sometimes. So it's hard. I felt this tension of man, I I need to work harder for the church. Because uh, I'm paid to do this, and so I was kind of begrudgingly doing these things, and you know I was doing what we call all of you to do, you know, go be good missionaries and and serve Jesus and, and be on mission to your friends and neighbors, and and part of me felt like I was only doing that because uh, I was paid to do that. So as I stepped back and I examined my heart in the midst of all this, uh, I came to the conclusion that I, I needed to not be on staff anymore. I couldn't do this anymore. Because uh, it wasn't good for me, and it, it wasn't honoring to the church. Um, and so I went away and, for a whole day of fasting and praying, and I came back with that decision. And um, I remember sending that email or text or whatever to Chris and Jay at the time. And it was really hard. It was kind of, it was kind of embarrassing in some ways. I felt like I was letting them down in some ways. And there's all these pressures. on it. I didn't have a job to go to, another thing. Like I needed to feed my family. I had another kid on the way or had just had another kid. I have so many I forget. Um, but, yeah, it was, it was just a dumb decision in so many ways. No one understood. It was really hard to explain to the church family, like, why would you do this? Because usually pastors only quit when there's, like, some sort of scandal or whatever. So I was just, it was all these things, right, that made this look like a bad decision. And why would it be a, why would it be a bad decision? You should just stay on, Matt. It's good. It's honoring Jesus. It's serving the church. You're doing God's work. You're doing all these things. Um, and so, you know, this, this isn't to make me look good, but this is how... Jesus wants us to think and act, right? He cares deeply about our motives and our hearts more than what our outcomes of our lives are going to be, right? It probably actually hurt West Village a little bit. It was harder on Chris for me to step off staff. I could tell, um, like, there was this season where me, him had to work through this, right? Like, I was kind of abandoning him to, the, to doing this thing. Um, but Jesus cared more that I got my heart right and did this because I love him and I want, I care deeply about his church. And these are the reasons I'm up here preaching, right? Um, not because I'm paid to do this. Um, I'm not calling out all the paid guys. I think they, they check their motivations regularly um, and they're the right guys for the job. Uh, but we need to do the same things and not care about, you know, if, if this decision is going to look dumb or if it's going to be the best for my family or my finances or whatnot. We need to care more about, is this what Jesus desires for me? Is this the best way that I can worship him fully right now? So we need to examine ourselves often. often. And the Bible acts as a mirror. Um, to, in my whole story, I went away for a day and I just read um, one psalm over and over again. And I used that psalm um, as a mirror to look into my own heart. And the Bible acts like this all the time, right? It shows us where we are broken, where our motives are off. Uh, and it's an amazing tool it's a living, breathing word of God, right? It has great power in our lives. So examine yourself. Use the Bible as a mirror. Uh, for some of us, we actually just need to take breaks from doing to have self-examination. We need to stop um, and get away and see what happens when we're just called to rest and sit. Um, this isn't me. I love resting and sitting. But for some of us, that act of not doing 
reveals to us that, man, my identity is actually based in my good Christian activity or serving my family or whatever, right? And it causes us to step back and examine that and see, are we building this faith upon our own deeds? Or are we building it in the ability to sit and rest and just know Jesus? And that being the fuel for what drives us on. And then the third thing is, so understand your salvation. Examine your lives. Submit yourself to a community of believers. Jesus didn't call us to follow him and worship him by ourselves. He called us to do it within the church, within a community of believers. Uh, And even though the church is broken, Jesus uses us to humble and refine each other. You know, a lot of us could probably be better missionaries if we did it alone and weren't dragged down by all you bums. Um, And and it would just lead us straight to hell, right? We would just go and we would get distracted by our own means and ends and plans. We need the body of believers to come around us and show us where we're deceiving ourselves, where we're not actually doing the Father's will, we're doing our will where belief is misplaced or wrong or off and lies have trickled in. So I encourage you, if you're not in community, get in one. And when you get there, submit yourselves. Take the posture of a humble learner. Uh, you, know, you can share with others. You can call stuff in other people's lives out, but be prepared to have it called out in your lives. Because Jesus uses that, right? He uses us. to, Even though we're broken people, we actually reflect bits of Jesus back to each other. Uh, and he uses his spirit through us to speak truth in the people's lives and show us where we're being deceived. And so the heart of this section is, I never knew you, right? Like those words are powerful. So we've asked these questions against self-deception. The next question is, do we know him and does he know us? Do we know Jesus and does he know us? Martin Lloyd-Jones again says this, we must realize that what God wants, what our blessed Lord wants above all is ourselves. What scripture calls our heart. He wants the inner man, the heart. He wants our submission. He does not want merely our profession, our zeal, our fervor, our works, or anything else. He wants us. Is this the God that you know? This God that yearns so deeply to know you that he would send his son to die for you, to endure great agony and pain, all for the potential that you would know him fully. And in light of that, does that cause you to want to know this king even more? How could someone do that for me? I must know what they are like even more. My life must be striving after knowing this God so richly and intimately so I can understand and be in awe of everything he's done. Martin Lloyd-Jones again, you'll sense a theme here. Um, says, the greatest insult to the Lord is a will that is not completely and entirely surrendered. The greatest insult is a will that is not completely and entirely surrendered. Why is this insulting to Jesus? Why, if you hold a little bit of back and they say, well, this area of my life is going to be Matt's will. Jesus, you can have the rest. Why is that so insulting? Because Jesus held nothing back. He gave it all. He came from heaven to earth. He lived amongst broken, sinful people, had all the same challenges and temptations that we have. Was spurned by his people. His family, his friends, endured insult, injury, mockery, and ultimately death. There's a moment where the father turns his face away from him. For us, that's really hard to understand in some ways, right? But for Jesus, who has just been intimately engaged with his father for all of eternity, to have this moment where that is taken away from him is just the most gut-wrenching, painful thing he could go through. And he endures all this willingly for our sake. So when we say, well, I want to hold back this little area of my heart back, Jesus, I'll take everything else you did, but I think I'm actually good enough or smarter than you in this area. 
That is so insulting to him. So demeaning to what he went through. And this is why he calls us to submit the entirety of our lives to him. To everything that we are, have, and do. So ask yourselves, are you deceiving yourselves? Or have you fully surrendered your life to Jesus and his will? He moves on with the final story, the final tale of warning uh, for all of us. So 24 to 27, it says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, the whole Sermon on the Mount, everything that Jesus has been talking about, and puts them into practice, is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. So why does Jesus end with this story? I think you'd want to end on a high note, a glorious picture of what the kingdom is going to look like. But he ends here. And he ends with this story is because it's the choice that we are given. At one at the end of the sermon, when we hear these words of Jesus, when we hear his, what his kingdom looks like, it's also the choice that we face every day. So let's look at these, these two men. What do they want? They both want to build a house. Very similar. They, so they have similar desire to build a house. They're building roughly the same location because the same storm comes. It's a similar house foundation. I think houses all have foundations. That's a thing, right? Um, And the same storm comes to them. So they're in the same area, like I said. So from the outside, actually, these men look very similar. Uh, And when I first read this passage, I'm like, oh, this is obviously talking about Christians and non-Christians, right? That's that's obviously there's two differences here. But as I dove in more, I'm like, oh, this story is about us. This is about church people. This is about Christians. And the two type of Christians, the two type of people that would assent and say with their mouths that they're followers of Jesus, but there's actually this deep distinction in them. So what's different? How can we tell the difference with someone who is, you know, truly knows Jesus and those that just know of him? What's the difference between those that build on the sand and those that build on the rock? The rock is the good thing, solid foundation, sand, bad. And a lot of you probably aren't builders, so I'll give you my deep building knowledge. Let's look at the wise man, the Christian man, the follower of Jesus. Uh, he is patient and methodical, laying this good foundation on a rock, thinking through that. What are the characteristics of this person? Uh, and so as I list through these, ask which one do you align with? We're all going to align with the good one because we're good Christian people, but... You know, seriously examine yourself and see where your, your heart leads. So the wise man, he listens to expert, experts in instruction. He's easy to teach. He's a humble learner. He submits to the wisdom of builders and what's going on and what's right and proper and is going to endure. He takes in the full counsel of Jesus. He looks at it all, doesn't ignore any parts. He recognizes his own brokenness and where he is lacking. He knows he has to depend on these expert opinions because um, he knows that he's lacking. You know, the wise man wants Jesus and not a blessing. So often we come to Jesus and we want all the good fruit that comes from being a follower or as part of his kingdom, right? We want that. We want that blessing. But we don't want Jesus. But the wise man wants Jesus above the blessing. He's defined by being a servant. What the foolish man? The nominal, or I said faker, Christian. They have a rushed and haphazard life. You know, building wherever is easiest. I'm sure building on the sand had a better view, was closer to the water, and was awesome, right? Seemed really good. Land might have been cheaper. Just got a good deal, whatever it is. This person ignores advice. They're hard to teach, right? Hard to correct. They're arrogant. They think they know it all. 
man, that hits home. Uh, they're out to please themselves above all else. You know, we make these easy decisions because it's a path of least resistance. It's easy. It's good. We get some joy out of this. Well, they really they only take bits and pieces of Jesus and ignore the hard things. You know, look at some of the stuff we've taught on over the last year and a half. Anger, prayer, divorce, retaliation, loving your enemies, giving to the needy, laying up treasures in heaven, talking about money, fasting, not eating food, not worrying. Man, there's a lot of stuff people want to cut out of the Sermon on the Mount. There's hard words in here, right? There's hard words and the foolish man only takes the, the good one, the bumper sticker f- phrases, right? You need to take the whole counsel of Jesus. You know, the foolish man doesn't like acknowledging or talking about their own sin. They have a really hard time when people call them out on stuff, even if it's done really gently. They run or they fight. You know, this person, they really just want the blessing. They don't want Jesus. They want the good fruit. I want to get out a hell-free card. This person is a consumer. And that's what comes with deception. We've deceived ourselves. And what do these men build upon? The first man, he listens. The wise man listens and is changed by Jesus and acts and builds upon what Jesus has said. They build upon the gospel, the good news, and the teaching of Jesus that undergirds, that's a great word, their whole life. Their whole life is built and formed and shaped by Jesus' will, the Father's will, the constitution of his kingdom, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, These things matter more than any other decisions or any other pressures or any other desires. The second man is a fool. He listens. This might be a harsh word for some of us who have sat over the past 30 weeks and listened to the Sermon on the Mount, was entertained by a few jokes, listened to some good music, left, and haven't been changed. Because they ignore Jesus' words. They keep just doing what they're doing, building their own kingdom, and they build their life upon whatever's easiest. It's your career, it's money, it's pleasure. A lot of us is family. We have this idea of what a good family looks like and how they're going to, you know, we're going to do a great job of that. And we built our whole life around that or, or work, like I said, you know, I need to just get these three promotions and when I get there, then everything will be right and in place and my life will be great. And we build upon these foundations that look good, that our world actually likes. If you talk to your non-Christians, they'll be like, that's amazing. Your kids are so well-behaved. People don't say that about my kids. It's great. Um, Your career is going so well. Your house is so nice. Whatever it is, or it could even be within the church world, right? Oh, man, you serve at Broken Ministries. You're leading a community group. Um, You're helping in kids. You're doing this. That's amazing. And they build us up for these things that are actually wrong foundations, And so the foolish man builds his house wherever he thinks best, will make him look best. And then he just puts some Jesus in the house as a decoration, right? Put a little Jesus on this shelf, a little Jesus picture on the wall. So people walk in and be like, oh, this is a Jesus house. Jesus is known here. They don't go in the basement, see the water coming in, and the shiftiness, and feel the tremors and the quakes as this foundation of this house is unstable, and when the hard times come, it's all revealed that you know, Jesus was just a little decoration. He wasn't enduring. He didn't last because they ignored the teachings of Jesus. They didn't let the kingdom change their lives. They didn't root firmly in there because hard things are going to come. So here's some questions we need to ask ourselves to make sure our foundation is in order before the storm comes. Jesus' intent here is not just to condemn us to one or the other at the end and show us what it's going to look like. His intent here is to show us the difference now, before the hard times come, before we die and go stand face to face to Jesus. He wants us now to look at this so that we can move our foundation before it's too late. 
That's his heart for us. That's his heart for his church to get their lives in order now. So questions. When a major decision comes in your life, you know, a new job opportunity, moving, having kids or more kids, um, all, all these things, right? Do we look at it through the lens of what's best for Jesus and his will or what's best for us? What's, what do you think of first, right? Is it, oh, yeah, that promotion would be nice, but it actually means, you know, I'm going to have three less hours in the day. Like, oh, well, maybe I won't take that because those three hours would be great for mission and ministry. I'm only working evenings and weekends. That's really hard because that's when my friends want to hang out. And that's when I can talk to them about Jesus. Or this, is this the lens that we view all of our decisions through, right? Like, if you're going to move, is it not, you know, there's always reasons, different reasons to move. Bigger space, new kids, whatever. But are you moving and thinking, man, I want a space where the church can gather in. Because that would be great for Jesus' kingdom. And I want to use my house for that. We look at all decisions through that. Another question asked, can you celebrate the hard things in your life? Death, tragedy, hard circumstances, these things that come at us, they come at all of us. Life is not easy. Life gets challenging and hard. Do you lament them, mourn from them, run from them, wish they never happened again? Or can you sit back and say, Jesus, thank you, not tritely, recognize that in the midst of those hard things we get to see if we know him we get to see what our foundation is built upon we get to dive deeper into Jesus depend on him more know him more fully can you take joy in depending on Jesus more is that a good thing in your life uh, that's that's a really potent question that we all need to ask because um uh, in my own life, and my wife's life, we've been in a hard season the past three years, and I feel like a lot of people around West Village actually have. And God has been using that to show me, yeah, this is, this is a, a good thing. Because all you need in your life is me. You don't need all these things that get stripped away. You just need me, and that's where I want you to be. So can you celebrate the hard things? <clears throat> Do you regularly contemplate how broken and sinful you are? Is this something you think about? Man, I messed up. Thank you, Jesus. We don't do this out of self-loathing or some sort of penance that we need to punish ourselves. We do this to realize that I'm way down here and I'm just going to get farther down and Jesus is just up here and he's just going to get farther up there. And as that gap gets bigger, that's just more reason to praise him. It's not more that we need to do. It's just our picture of Jesus increasing in our life and that's amazing. It really causes us to appreciate what Jesus has done for us, right? As we contemplate, man, I'm, I'm so broken. Uh, I'm so far removed from Jesus. Uh, the John the Baptist, who came before Jesus earlier in Matthew and kind of prepared the way for Jesus, talked and preached. Um, as Jesus is kind of on the upswing of ministry and John was on the decline, John said, uh, he must increase, referring to Jesus, and I must decrease. Uh, and that phrase has always stuck with me as a way, something that I want to define my life. I want Jesus to get bigger in my life, and I want to get less in my life. And looking at our own brokenness leads us to that. It just causes Jesus to get better and bigger and more amazing. So ask yourself often, where are you broken? How are you sinful? The other side of that is what happens when people call it sinful behavior in your life? What happens when someone comes to you and says, I think this area is off. I think you're worshiping something else than Jesus. I think this is all about your will and not his. And do we run or fight? Justify ourselves? Do we submit? Say, yeah. I want to listen to what you have to say there. I'm blind in this area. I've deceived myself. Because that attitude points to a foundation in Jesus, right? So we need to constantly ask this question, is Jesus the bedrock foundation of our life, or is he just a nice decoration we put on the shelf? Because if he's just a nice decoration that we put on the shelf, we're going to get to the end, he's going to say, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoer. 
And that's a harsh word, and I don't want anybody in this room to have to hear that from him. So as we draw to a close, um, I'll invite the band up. No idea how long I've been going. <laughs> Jesus concludes with this. Or Matthew, the author, concludes with this. He says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Are you amazed with Jesus? If you're amazed by his words, his teachings, the authority that he has, the way he speaks into our lives, then you're a wise person. Or are you deceiving yourselves? Is Jesus just a trivial nice thing that you can add to your life to polish it up a little bit? Then you're a fool. You want to drop everything and build your life upon him? I hope so. I hope at least you desire that and we can learn to walk that out together here. We can challenge each other to that. We can call each other to that. We can serve each other in that. So ask these questions. Be disciplined in this now because the storms will come. Maybe you're already in them and you're, this is being revealed to you. That's God's grace in your life. It seems hard. God's grace is that he's going to reveal this to you now to build your life on him. If you're not in that storm, ask these questions. Start to reorganize your life around Jesus' will, around his priorities. Build it on him as a wise foundation. Final, final Martin Lloyd-Jones quote, because how could we end any other way? Now, the one common factor in the lives of all those who have always been able to face the trials of life triumphantly and gloriously, is that they have always been men, women, who have given themselves to living the Sermon on the Mount, to living out these wise words of Jesus, to making that their foundation. And pray for us. Jesus, thank you that you're so gracious to us, that you give us this word, a word of warning, of calling us back to you, because you don't want our life to come crashing down around us. You want our foundation to be firm and solid in you. So Spirit, I ask that you'll use these words to root out lies and deception, unbelief, so that we can come back to you. Uh, so that we can recognize that we're your loved children, that we're your servants and you're a good king, and that your will is amazing and great. Thank you.